Um, first of all, I'd like to thank uh, Gina and Gerald and Becky and Utah for organizing this, um, this talk and inviting me to take part in it. It really is a true honor. Um, I would also like to thank the History Department and the Political Science Department and Russian Area Studies for co-sponsoring the talk. And for my colleagues and my students for taking time out of their busy schedules uh, to come and listen uh, uh, to this talk about Vera Figner. Um, so just a little bit of background about Vera and this project. Years ago, uh, I, when I first started studying Imperial Russian history, I became fascinated by this idea of these women, mostly women of privilege and nobility, who abandoned their privilege and their prerogatives in society to dedicate themselves to the revolutionary mo movement, um, including women who embraced violence as a means of po uh, political protest. And this fascinated me because I, I couldn't figure out why women who benefited from a system would devote their lives to eviscerate uh, the system that gave them their privileges. And so I started looking into this group, and as I did, the experience of Vera Figner stood out. Um, Vera Figner was born into the provincial nobility. She was born in Kazan in a little village outside of the provincial capital of Kazan, about 800 miles to the southeast of St. Petersburg. So she was born far from the, um, uh, the center of power. And um, she abandoned uh, her life on the estate. She abandoned hopes for a medical career um, and these material privileges of which I spoke uh, to devote her life to revolution. Um, in the process of doing so, she became not just a rank-and-file member of a group called the People's Will that actually assassinated uh, the third to last czar of Russia in 1881, but she became a, a leader among the group. Um, and in the process of becoming a leader and in the process of the 20-plus years that she spent in prison for her crimes, she became this icon of the revolution. She became this almost allegorical figure uh, of liberty for uh, a new generation. Um, and so she, she provided this seemingly unendless uh, context for looking at imperial Russia through the guise of one woman. Um, she expected to die in 1884, um, and this is where I start my book, um, and I'll tell you about that later, but she expected to die in 1884 because she was finally caught um, by the political police, by the Okhrana, and she was condemned to death. Um, she was happy about her death sentence. She welcomed her death sentence, and she looked forward to it because she thought that this would, cap, uh, this would um, be the, the icing on the cake of a lifetime of devotion to the, to the cause. Uh, but the Russian government decided not to execute her. Uh, they had executed a woman um, who was one of Vera's comrades a few years before, Sofia Perovskaya, and there had been this reaction around the world that um, had issues with killing a woman. Um, and so what the state decided to do is send her away. They decided to just lock her up in what they called, what she called, a living grave, uh, this, this fortress that some called the Russian Bastille. And they expected her to die behind its walls and to fade from memory. But that doesn't happen. Instead, what happens is, living in this men's prison for the next 22 years, she becomes an icon of the revolution. She becomes um, uh, a symbol for the men in the prison and for those outside of the prison, eventually. She emerged from prison um, in 1904. She went into prison in uh, 1884. She emerges in 1904, um, battered and broken, uh, but not defeated. 
and she encountered a world in which she had to figure out a way to learn to live again. It was a world that had moved on without her, and it was a world that was born of the industrial age, and um, uh, she f had to find political uh, a way to find significance in this world. And this brings me to, I think, what is one of the most interesting parts of Vera's life and my biography of her. And that is this. One would assume that for a woman who spent her time building bombs and hurling them at the feet of the leader of Russia, that that would be the most dramatic moment in her career, um, that that would be the most uh, exciting. Um, but in my mind, because she lived not just in Imperial Russia, but in Soviet Russia, um, this, the fact that she is a bridge between two worlds is, in my opinion, what makes her so fascinating. Um, because her life allows a unique look um, into the construction of a national revolutionary identity um, in this newfound Soviet Union. And her life and her, the narrative of her, her life um, show the ways in which this identity had to be revised to meet alternative political realities, depending on the situation. So Vera Figner's life story and its alternate silencing and celebration is in many ways a history of the political, uh, a, a political history of the Soviet Union. Um, so as I first began to explore Vera's life um, and her own narrative of it, I found myself confronting the prism of a life. On the one hand, there were the details of her life as she lived it. There was her family, there was her background, there was her uh, relationships, her school, her political ideology, her radicalism, her imprisonment, her cultural activities, her illness, and after 90 years, her death. Uh, but on the other hand, there was the telling of her life and the appropriation of her life narrative for various purposes, both personal and political. And so in this way, my biography of Vera Figner is not just a biography of Vera Figner, but it's also a history of her life and times and a, and a biography of the historical narrative of her life. So um, this brings me to the question of biography as a genre, because this is a, 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 an unusual genre for academics, I, I suppose. Um, for some of my students who are here know that a lot of times when I describe Russia, I describe Russia as existing uh, as a bridge between two worlds. That if in Russian history at certain times, Russia has one foot um, in the east and one foot in the west, and it, it is this bridge. And in many ways, biography as a genre is, is a bridge. Um, in order to do a biography, one needs to become basically a, a cultural and political historian because you need to figure out the ways that your subject was influenced by the times in which they lived. Um, I am a historian, and I am very acutely aware of how uh, and concerned about how my book will be received in the academy and the reviews that will be um, uh, uh, written about it. Um, but at the same time, biography is one of the most popular, if not the most popular, forms of nonfiction writing. And so in some ways, just as I see Vera as a bridge between two worlds, between the pre-1917 and the post-1917, and Russia as a bridge between two worlds, biography is a bridge between two worlds. And so I guess it's kind of fitting that it all comes together. Um, I was picking my daughter up at piano lessons yesterday, and I was telling the piano teacher about this book talk today. And she said, when is the book coming out? And I said, oh, it's, it's coming out at the end of May. 
And she said, oh, well, you know, great beach reading, right? You know? And I, I thought to myself, well, I think it is great beach reading. Um, and in that way, I see my book as, um, uh, as being able to appeal to two different audiences. Uh, because in biography, and what makes biography interesting, is that it is the story of a life. Um, one of my colleagues in the history department, Dr. Larry Little, uh, a couple of months ago was talking about history. And he said, all history is about people, right? How can you have history without, without people? And I thought to myself, well, that's, that's kind of how I see things as well. And biography is one of those um, wonderfully fascinating tools that allows a historian to bring about a, a level of empathy um, for the subject, for the time, from, from his or her readers, at the same time as being able to make some serious theoretical and historical arguments and present some original analysis. And so um, that's why it's important. But then the question becomes, why should anyone care about one life? We can talk about my piano teacher who might be sitting, not my piano, my daughter's piano teacher sitting on the beach becoming enthralled with the idea of the assassination of Alexander II in 1881. But what is it about one life and what is it about Vera's life that makes her important? What, why should anyone care about this one woman's life? Um, and so the question why Vera Figner in my mind is almost, is almost um, endless. But to, in a nutshell, she basically serves as this lens um, through which some really pivotal issues confronting late Imperial Russia can be um, studied. Um, for example, why did, the same reason that attracted me to her study in the first place, why did so many wealthy, educated women reject their lives of privilege to challenge the, the Tsar state? Secondly, why did men and women who never in their lives beforehand exhibited signs of violence, never seemed inclined to violence, why did they turn to, to violence as a method of protest and have no compunction about doing so? Studying Vera's life allows me to look into these different questions. It also allows me to look at the practical activities and dynamics um, within revolutionary organizations. And by examining the life that Vera has as a story, the life not that she lived from 1852 to 1942, but the life that her biography has, it allows me to look at the ways that revolutionary lives and legacies were manipulated to construct foundational myths for the Russian revolutionary movement and the socialist state that came into being in October of 1917. I just returned from a, a conference in Oxford on living and uh, on writing and reading um, Russian biographies. And um, I presented a paper, but I was also part of this roundtable. And on the roundtable were four biographers. And one of the biographers who started, started with a PowerPoint. And she was trying to tell everybody who the subject was that she was studying. Um, and I didn't have to do that, because in circles that I travel, in my scholarly circles, Russian historians know who Vera Figner is. They're very well aware of her. her. Her memoirs are used in courses, in classes. She's used as a source. Um, and so I don't, within the academy, I don't have to explain who she is or justify her existence. However, I have certain methodological issues that I have to confront because of her renown. First of all, she was a prolific writer. She wrote seven volumes of published writings. Those are just the published writings, seven volumes. 
um, everything, two, two, well, three volumes of, of her memoirs and then articles, letters, you know, it goes on and on. In addition to that, there are literally thousands and thousands of unpublished writings that she, that she did that are housed in at least seven different cities in four different countries. Um, and so gathering the evidence that I needed to in, in order to, to write the story of Vera and her life story and her biography um, posed certain challenges that um, other historians don't necessarily face. Uh, some of my colleagues who work in uh, medieval history or the ancient history would kill to have these methodological problems. They would kill to have the sources that I do. Uh, and I understand that and I'm grateful for the sources, but they are a blessing and a, and a curse. In addition, most of the publications that, that Vera had, most of the, um, the published writings that she had, were published during the Soviet period. And this brings another issue and another struggle. And that is this. I can read Vera's memoirs, and many people do. They read her memoirs, and they take down notes, and they, they get the information that they need to understand this period in Russian history. But to really read the memoirs, you have to read through them, right? You have to read between the, behind, between the lines, and as one biographer said, you know, under the carpet. You have to look for that figure under the carpet because most of what is written is written for a political purpose. The, the picture I have up here has nothing to do with Vera, really. It's, it's, a, it's a socialist realist painting. Um, and the reason I use it is because in the Soviet period, especially in the 1920s and the 1930s, 1930s and 1940s, um, art was supposed to uh, have a political message. Stalin called artists and writers engineers of the human soul. And Although Vera never joined the Communist Party, the idea of living and writing during this period, it, it hung over her. And so when um, I explore her, her memoirs, I, in many ways I have to read through, read through the memoirs. Um, Vera wrote her memoirs and they were hit. Uh, she published the first two volumes of her memoirs in 1921 and 1922. Over the next decade, they were translated into eight different languages. Uh, around the world. Her memoirs, this is the English, original English translation of her memoirs, published in, in 1927. Um, part of the struggle of reading Vera's memoirs are that she has an agenda. And she has a conception of her life that she wants to put out there. And one of the things that I've struggled with over the past several years as I've written this book, is uh, to wrestle with, in many ways, Vera's conception of her life and my own. Vera wants her reader to, to see her life as a coherent whole. She sees her, herself as being indistinct from her public self. Um, but that's unrealistic. Um, and so in many ways, I've had to interrogate um, Vera and her depiction of herself and her life and where her life fit into the, um, the historical narrative. Vera, as I said, was born uh, into privilege. This is a picture of her when she was five years old. Um, and she was a member of the nobility. She was a privileged, pampered little girl. Um, she was the oldest of six surviving siblings. Um, but one thing that is important to remember about Vera is that she was a girl. Uh, and that may sound silly. But um, as a girl growing up in Imperial Russia, there were certain constraints upon what Vera could do and what she couldn't do. Um, and she was very 
aware of that. Within her house, her father ruled like a mini czar, like a patriarch. Um, and imperial households were, were run according to a strict standard in order to maintain order, not just within the home, but without, outside the home. Um, Vera saw her entire life as being reasonable and following a direct path. Oopsie. Uh, oh, that's why. Okay. Um, between, maybe not, uh, between her life as a child and what she grew to be. Um, Vera was born in the twilight of an age of serfdom in Russia. Um, as she came uh, into the world, Russia was experiencing the last throes of um, its feudal period. Um, when she was only nine years old, serfdom was abolished um, in Russia. And this affected um, Vera dramatically. Um, she, when she talks about the emancipation of the serfs in 1861, she doesn't talk about it as um, a large political event. Instead, she sees it in very personal terms. She sees the emancipation of the serfs as having this revolution within her home, not necessarily in the servants that, that leave um, in the aftermath of, of the abolition of serfdom, which they did, but for the effect that the emancipation had on her father, who she saw as mellowing over time um, because serfdom no longer existed. Um, Vera um, uh, was far from the imperial capital when serfdom was abolished. Um, you can see here's St. Petersburg, which was the capital at the time. Here's Kazan, which was the, the provincial capital of where she lived. If it wasn't Russia, this would look further away than it actually is. It's just because the country is so large that um, one can't um, notice how, um, how, how big of a, a, a territory this covers. Um, when, when the emancipation was declared, the terms of the emancipation were written in these pastel-hued, gilded palaces in St. Petersburg. And Vera lived in the countryside. But it was life in the countryside that the emancipation was designed, um, that was designed to change. The figures were noble, but they weren't incredibly wealthy. They, be they belonged to about the middle strata, strata of, um, of nobility. And so their lives um, were really rooted in the countryside. Higher level nobles spent their time in St. Petersburg and in Moscow. But for the Figners, they really lived in Kazan in the, um, uh, in the provinces. Um, and so she experiences this revolution firsthand. This is a picture of Vera. She's seated. She looks very thrilled to be having her, her picture taken, <laughs> as does her younger sister, Lydia. Um, both girls became revolutionaries. Um, both girls wound up going um, to prison. And as w this is another um, aspect that made me fascinated in Vera Figner's life. I mentioned that she was the oldest of six children. There were four girls and two boys. All four um, girls became involved in the revolutionary movement to some extent or another. Three formally belonged to revolutionary parties. One, the youngest daughter, um, never became a revolutionary, but she went into exile along with her husband. Whereas the two boys lived these very stable lives. One was a world-renowned opera singer. The other was a mining engineer, and they remained firmly committed to, the, um, uh, to their experiences and to their role in Imperial Russia. Um, Vera was a beautiful woman. By all accounts, everyone raved about her beauty. 
And one of the things that she makes a big deal about in her memoirs is overhearing a conversation once in which uh, two relatives were talking about her and her sister Lydia. And they were comparing the two. And Lydia was just over a year, just more, a little more than a year younger than Vera. And Vera said she remembers them saying, yes, Vera is more beautiful than Lydia, but she's hollow. In many ways, she is this doll that, there's, that she's hollow on the inside, beautiful on the outside, and hollow on the inside. One of the things that I argue in my book is that Vera, for most of her life, made a conscious effort to run away from that conception, to prove to herself and to everyone that was around her that she was more than this noble doll, that she didn't want to live this parasitic existence as a wife and a mother on a, a provincial noble estate with no sense of autonomy, no sense of economic independence, that she wanted to make something of herself. And um, while this might just seem like an incidental remark, um, and Vera uses it in her memoirs in just one small chapter, uh, in my mind it becomes um, uh, uh, determinant in, uh, for her. Vera was, um, for the first six years of her life, she had a, 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 a nanny and then a governess. But when she was seven, she was sent to uh, a so-called noble institute for, uh, an institute for noble girls, the Rodionovsky Institute for Noble Girls in, this, uh, in Kazan. Here's a modern, more modern day picture of it. Um, in the institute, Vera lived a very constricted, almost a cloistered life. Um, and this had consequence for her as well. Um, and by studying her time within the institute, we gain insights into the state of education for women in Russia at the time. Um, in the institute, for example, there was a library, but the library was locked at all times, and the keys weren't even kept on, on campus. They were kept several miles away by the rector of the University of Kazan. And the idea was this, yes, we are establishing this institute, this school for girls, but we don't want them to read. We don't want them to do anything dangerous because that, uh, that gives them opportunity and gives them some sense of independence. Instead, what the girls were supposed to do was to perfect their writing and uh, their penmanship, that is, and their drawing and their social skills because they were being groomed to be good wives. That's what education was for for, for, for women in the Russian Empire. Uh, it was designed to um, train them for their future lives. And for the most part, their future lives for women, especially women of the nobility, were, um, were supposed to be as wives and mothers. However, timing is everything. And um, one of the things that Vera does is she explains everything as being inevitable. But I, I argue with that. And, in this way, Vera was born in a certain time when Russia was changing. And there, there was this energy and this vitality that accompanied discussions about the emancipation of the serfs that provided for opportunities and provided for changes. And she made conscious change, uh, decisions about whether she would um, em em embrace those changes or not. And schooling became fundamental to this. As many of my students know, in the mid-19th century, Russia um, uh, suffered a setback. They had fought in the Crimean War against the British and the French, and they didn't fare that well. Um, and what part of the reaction to Russia's um, poor showing in the Crimean War was an effort to create more medical resources for the Russian people. 
uh, more doctors. And for a time, the Russian government was so desperate and so crazy that they actually um, explored having women trained in the medical sciences. Now, they didn't go as far as to allow for women to gain medical degrees. That was you know, beyond the, the scope of what was considered permissible. But they did allow women to attend medical courses in St. Petersburg for a time in the 1860s. However, in the 1860s, there were student protests um, in the capital. There were also protests in Poland. There was all this upheaval. And one of the ways that the Russian government reacted to that was to constrict access to the university. And some of the first people to lose their um, access to the university were women. Well, you can imagine some women who had seen an opportunity for the first time, something that they could do with their lives, something meaningful. Medicine provided a way to earn one's way in the world and to have a sense of autonomy um, and, and social usefulness. To have that snatched away was demoralizing. At the same time that this was happening, the University of Zurich permitted women to enroll in its courses there. And in 1867, a Russian woman uh, by the name of Nadezhda Suslova was the first to take full advantage of this. She was the first woman to graduate from the University of Zurich with a medical degree. And when Suslova graduated in 1867, she said, I was the first, but I won't be the last. And truer words were never spoken. Because after Suslova graduated from the University of Zurich, a whole coterie of of young girls back in Russia who had gone to institutes like the Rodionovsky Institute, who had dreamed of having a life beyond the noble estate, saw an opportunity. And so they decided to try to get to Zurich to enroll in medical school. Vera and her sister Lydia were among them. And Vera decided, it was soon after she had graduated from the Rodionovsky Institute as the top student, the top student in her class, um, that she would go to Zurich and become a medical doctor. Um, but the problem was, as a woman in Russia, she needed to get the permission of her father. Her father refused categorically to give her permission to travel. In Imperial Russia, um, women couldn't hold their own passports. You needed an internal passport, and her father held her passport. Her father said, no, 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 you can't go. And um, he decided, oh, she's a flighty little girl. I'll send her to the capital. She's, it's her coming out time. You know, it's a, uh, and so he sent her to the provincial capital of Kazan in an effort to distract her from this quest to get a medical degree. Um, in Kazan, she met a boy. Um, and her father was very happy about the boy that she met. He was a, from a good family. Um, he, the family was friends with the Figners, and they developed this relationship, and they decided to get married. However, how much Vera was interested in her suitor is, a, is debatable, because her suitor offered her an opportunity. Her father refused to give her permission to travel abroad, but if Vera was to marry, she wouldn't need her father's permission anymore. All she would need was the permission of her husband. And so 10 months after meeting Alexei Filipov, Figner married him in a little church in her village um, by her noble estate. And Filipov was more than happy to give Vera the permission that, that, that she needed. And as a matter of fact, he decided to accompany her to Switzerland. She convinced him, he was a, a law student, and she convinced him to give up his law career and instead go to Zurich, 
where he would study medicine and they would come back together and they'd open uh, a, a hospital uh, uh, for peasants on, on their noble estate. And he was so smitten with this dark-skinned beauty that he, he decided to, that he would um, uh, indulge her and they made plans to go to Zurich. Ironically, several weeks after the pair were married, Vera's father died um, of a heart attack. And it's interesting because um, if she had just waited um, and didn't marry Alexei, she wouldn't have needed um, to get married if that was indeed the reason that she decided to marry, marry Alexei in the first place. Um, but the pair decide to go to Zurich. And um, in Zurich, they encountered this uh, uh, community um, which I'm not getting all the pictures up on here. I don't know why. Uh, not, she, they didn't encounter, they, they encountered this community of Russians and political exiles that was stimulating. Vera and Alexei and her younger sister Vera were there to study medicine. But soon after they alighted, they got distracted. There was this civil society that was percolating that the Russians that were in Zurich experienced for the first time in their lives. In, in Russia, there weren't civil liberties, there weren't civil rights, there, weren't, there was no freedom of expression or assembly or religion and, or the press. But in Zurich, in this, in this Swiss canton, they experienced the liberal energy of the day um, in a way that inspired them. In Zurich, they found political exiles. They found members of the recently disbanded Paris Commune. Um, there were more than 100 Russian women in, in Zurich at the time. And the Russians that were there formed this uh, group called the, the Russian Library. It was a lending library, but it was also a lot more. They would collect funds for, uh, for people who need it. They would um, agitate on behalf of striking workers. And so for the first time, Vera and other Russians there were enjoying this civil society and a public sphere that was really inspiring. Vera thought that she escaped the patriarchal arm of her father in going to, Z uh, to Zurich, but she soon realized that she couldn't escape patriarchal Russia. Uh, because in 1873, the Russian government decided that the sojourn of this, the Russian women in Zurich had gone far enough, and they decided to bring them, uh, bring them home uh, to Russia. They issued a government decree that was printed in newspapers around the world that said that these women were susceptible to these political influences uh, and were falling prey to radical ideology. And at the same time that they accused the women of being so susceptible and so naive that they would be influenced by um, these radicals, they also accused them of being pernicious enough that should they return to Russia as mothers and as teachers, they co would corrupt the entire Russian society. And so they accused them of political radicalism, but they also accused them of something else. The Russian government realized, there were Russian men and women studying in Zurich, but the Russian government only targeted the women. And that's because although they said that they were radicals and that needed to stop, they also said that they were falling prey to these sexual depravities. And they accused the women um, in Zurich of practicing free love under fictitious marriages and of studying uh, the branch of obstetrics that is so horrendous that one can't even speak of it in many, um, uh, in, 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 uh, in, in many sophisticated circles. So they basically impugn these women uh, and their, um, um, their motives for being in, in Zurich and their, political, and their um, personal behavior. 
they do this in an effort to scare them and to bring them back, to have them be good little girls once again. But for most, the opposite happens. Instead, women leave Zurich and return to Russia not to go back to lives of, as mothers and daughters on the provincial estate, but in order to agitate against the government. Vera doesn't leave in this first wave, but many of her friends do. And they go back to Russia, and they agitate among workers. And they, they pose as workers, and they talk to them about, Russian, uh, about revolution. And these women were quickly arrested, and they were brought up on trial in a trial called the Trial of the Fifty. And some of the things that were said about these women when the Trial of the Fifty came up was that they, they compared them to early Christians because these women at their trial did not deny what they did. They said, yes, we did it, we own it, and this is the reason that we did it. And so the liberal press and the radical press compared them to early Christians. They called these women teachers of love, fraternity, and equality and said that they are our modern saints. And then the Russian government answered by sending these women into Siberian exile, an exile at hard labor for periods of anywhere from five to 10 years. This, what it does is it creates this idea of martyrdom among this class of women. And instead of these women being an example that dissuade other uh, potential revolutionaries from the cause of revolution, it impels many to revolution, including Vera. Vera, soon after this, goes home to Russia, and um, she becomes active in the, in the, um, in the revolutionary movement. Um, and she encounters a world that is really uh, two worlds. Uh, it's the world that she came from. It's the world of privilege. But for the first time, she encounters the world of the peasantry. She goes into the villages. She works as a medical assistant. And she sees poverty on a scale that she never imagined. She, and she doesn't see any way to fix it. She says she falls into bed every night not knowing how this situation can be resolved, that her efforts to give medical care to the, the people is just a band-aid over the situation. And what adds to her frustration is that she's continually harassed by the political police, that officials of the Russian state send police after uh, radicals like Vera and others um, repeatedly. And they're frustrated. And they, they'll establish ties in, a, in a, uh, an area and then have to move along and, and go to a different area. And they, they're frustrated. And, and so after ser several years of this continual pattern of work, tireless work, frustration, and being forced out, they, they decide that they have to do something else. And that's when they decide to embrace violence. For Vera, who wasn't a violent person, she thought it was OK. There's a lot of scholars who I reference in my book who talk about terrorism and the morality of terrorism. And in many ways, Vera and her compatriots are the world's first modern terrorist. They used ideas of, of suicide bombing, of, of sacrifice, and as terrorism, as propaganda by deed to advance their ideas and their cause. The only way that they reconcile themselves to this use of violence is by assuming that they will die in their mission, that, that so, so their violence will be sanctified by their own death and suffering. And also by the fact um, that liberal society seems okay with it. 
these revolutionaries who embrace violence, who target czarist officials, who eventually target the czar, think of themselves as justified. And because liberal society does not answer them with recrimination, they feel that they are sanctioned to, embrace, to engage in violence, and that they do. Vera becomes one of the founding members of a group called the People's Will, Narodnaya Volia, and they make it their mission to assassinate Tsar Alexander II, the same Tsar that had freed the serfs. In August of 1879, they form themselves into this group and they seal, they sign his death warrant, and their whole raison d'etre becomes uh, to, to kill the Tsar. They're determined to do this in the most modern of ways. They don't want to use a dagger. They don't want to use a gun. Instead, they feel themselves to be devotees of science and technology. And so they resolve to use dynamite, bombs, and explosions as a way to attack the czar and to bring down this autocratic system. They try several times to do this, and every time they fail. Uh, they lay mines under railroad tracks. They actually sneak dynamite into the Winter Palace itself, where the Tsar lives in an effort to, to, to um, have a dramatic explosion and kill him, but it never works. Finally, they decide in early 1881 that what they'll do is they'll, lie, they'll put a bomb underneath a street across which the Tsar normally travels. And they'll lay the, the bomb there, they'll, def they'll set the, the they'll light the fuse as he comes across, and should he take another route, or should the bomb not go off, they will have um, revolutionaries with handheld bombs, kind of crude hand grenades, standing in different spots, that, and they'll throw them at the czar. It's, it's a go. This is what they're going to do. And in, in late February 1881, the group is feverishly working to, to prepare this. They decided that the first day that they would start this plan would be March 1st, 1881, and the night before, the, uh, all the revolutionaries are gathered in Vera's apartment, and they're staying up late building these bombs, and Vera went to bed about 2 o'clock in the morning as some of the bomb makers were still um, making these devices. When she got up the next morning at 8, the devices were ready, and all the parties went out into the streets of St. Petersburg in order to bring down the autocracy and the czar himself. Vera was charged with waiting um, for, to receive people who were escaping the police and, and to get them out of town. And she waited in her apartment, wondering as every hour passed if they had done the unthinkable, if, if what they had aspired to do for so many years had finally come to bear and the, uh, the czar was murdered. Meanwhile, in the streets of St. Petersburg, the czar did take a route that he nor normally didn't. And so the mine that the, the party had placed beneath the streets was rendered useless. But Sofia Perovskaya, one of the other female leaders, had given these four handheld grenades to, to different revolutionaries and stationed them. And she gave the signal for the bomb throwers to go into action. First one was thrown into action. And this is the scene that's depicted here in this drawing. Um, in one, one of the most fascinating points, I think, um, this, this bomb was thrown, and it did a, a lot of damage. But if you can see here, the, the carriage, that's the carriage in which the Tsar was riding, um, it remained intact. And that's because that carriage had been a recent pre present to the Tsar from Napoleon III. 
Um, Napoleon III, realizing that the Tsar was being threatened by revolutionaries, gave him a supposedly bomb-proof carriage. And so it, it, it worked. The French knew what they were doing. And, and so um, Alexander II was okay. But he made what is the quintessential fatal mistake. Um, and that is he got out of the carriage and he strolled up and down the canal to survey the damage. As he did, he passed one of the bomb throwers who, uh, the, who had thrown the first bomb. And his security detail said, sire, everything is under control. The, the um, assailant is in custody. And the czar said, thank God all is well. At which point, the first bomb thrower said, we will see if you will still thank God. And Alexander II continued on his way. At that point, a second bomb thrower threw his hand grenade. This time, when the dust and smoke and snow settled, Alexander II lay on the ground. OK, it's not there. I don't know. Uh, he lay <laughs> Yeah, there we go. Imagine him. Imagine him laying on the ground. It's actually, it's a sanitized picture of him back at the, at the Winter Palace dying. Um, I don't know where they are. Um, but the, um, he lay on the ground, literally with his legs torn asunder, bleeding out. And he said to his security detail, I am cold. Take me to the palace. And he does. And an hour and a half later, the, the funeral flag is raised over the palace as, as Alexander II died. Meanwhile, Vera didn't hear the explosion. She was, she was blocks away, and she didn't know what had happened. She grew frustrated and went to a, um, a, um, um, a friend's apartment. And it was only on her way back that she discovered that they had done the unthinkable and the czar had, had been killed. You can imagine the, the reaction that the state had after this. The, the there, it was a police dragnet. The streets filled with um, the police searching for the assailants. And sure enough, many of the leaders were um, uh, detained, arrested, tried very speedily, and a month after the assassination, executed in a very public way um, in St. Petersburg, attended by um, over 100, uh, uh, almost 100,000 people. Vera was not part of this. She escaped, and it was during this period of, of being free that she became a legendary revolutionary. Um, she, in her memoirs, tells a story of the day of the um, execution of her comrades. She, it, 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 her roommate had been arrested, and so she knew that the police would be coming for her soon. But she decided that she wasn't going to leave the apartment right away. She said, if they haven't been here yet, they won't come. The next morning, after, they, after she and her comrades had cleaned out the apartment of revolutionary leaflets and a printing press and some explosive devices, she stayed, had a cup of tea, and swept the floors. And this idea of her standing there sweeping the floors that are soon to be muddied by the boots of gendarmes coming in to, to squire her away to prison um, is telling. Because she, she delights in telling the readers of her memoirs that she left and wasn't detected. But when the gendarmes came in, they found her samovar still warm so that she had just escaped. This goes a long way in describing how Vera writes about her life, and, uh, and, and purposely so. She goes out of her way to paint herself as this daring, almost reckless, martyr, willing to sacrifice herself on behalf of the people. And part of what I argue in the book is there is an element of that 
to Vera's life. There is this element of recklessness, of daring, of devotion to the people. But in her devotion to radicalism, in her devotion to terrorism, there is also an element of egotism. There is an element of a, a, a desire to see the manifestation of her own will and power and autonomy that becomes intoxicating for her and impels her to, towards the cause of revolution. She escaped the police dragnet for over two years after her comrades were executed. Um, and during this time, she single-handedly led the people's will and the remnants of the people's will. And so she becomes this, this revered um, um, figure. But eventually, betrayed by a martyr, she, she finds her way into prison. And her, her trial itself became a, a cause celeb. Um, that people, everybody wanted to see in uh, this trial, and tickets were, were very rare to come by. Um, she uh, took the stand at her, at her trial and gave her own testimony as to why she became a revolutionary. And it's very interesting to read her testimony, because in, that, in this testimony, she doesn't talk about the, the disenfranchised people. She doesn't talk about the horrible conditions in the villages. Instead, she talks about the inability for educated Russians to find opportunities for self-expression and autonomy. And so in this way, the political and the personal merge for her. Although she builds herself as a purely political revolutionary being, there is this element of the personal um, that is inescapable in her life. Uh, that as much as she wants to show herself to be this uh, purely political creature in which personal issues don't matter, the personal continues to matter, but the personal becomes inextricable from the political. This is a picture of Schlieselberg Fortress where she spent 20 years after being condemned to death. Um, in the fortress, which has now been transformed into a museum, there were 40 cells um, in the fortress, and it's a museum with the pictures of its inhabitants outside the cells. And it's hard to see, but on the top floor, um, it, or separating these two floors, and you probably can't see from this picture, but it's a net. And the idea was this, that the, the conditions in the fortress were so horrible that they had to put a net um, in an effort to prevent any, any prisoner from from ending their, their stay in the fortress. Um, the fortress had been built specifically for the members of the People's Will, and it was designed to be horrible and um, um, devastating. And it is here that I argue that Vera transforms from a revolutionary into a revolutionary icon. Within the prison, she was one of two women within the prison, and all of the men in the prison looked to her. She was what the prison um, documents called the tuning fork, the moral tuning fork of the prison. Um, her sacrifice was somehow seen as, as more intense as, uh, from any others. And I argue in the book that it was because she was a woman, that the gendered implications of her suffering as a woman in a male prison uh, uh, um, uh, becomes, became so pronounced that um, she becomes more than um, the rest. She was released in 1904 from prison because her mother was dying of cancer and wrote a letter to the czar asking him to free her daughter so that she could see her one more time. In the prison that she was in, for years there had been no letters. 13 years they went without correspondence. It was barred to them, but there were never any visits. Um, one of the, the devastating 
tragedies, I think, in, in the Figner's life is that Vera does not get out of prison before her mother dies. They, they're exchanging these, these letters, and you can feel the hesitation um, on each side to end the letters, but her mother dies before she gets out of prison. Vera gets out of prison and is sent. You don't just get freed from prison. Instead, you have to go into a period of exile, and she did. And pictured here is Vera. She's in the white scarf, and there's her dog at her feet. Um, she found out the extent to which she was this radical uh, legend. On their way to, she she didn't. She was in exile in Arkhangelsk uh, on the way to the far north. And exiles who were traveling even farther would stop in their journey to go visit her and pay their respects, pay their homage to this woman. Um, this is a picture of when she was leaving our Congos to go to home and then eventually into Europe uh, in exile. And you can see there's a whole uh, group of people who come to see her off. They, they take her down to the, the docks and they sing to her as she gets on the, the, the boat. She is aware of her standing, and she uses it. She, she embraces it, and she loves it. She becomes, in many ways, this, this living legend and a figure that's larger than life. In exile, uh, she, she gets out of prison, and you can imagine how difficult it was to re readjust to life after 20 years in prison, uh, and she can't. And so finally, the Russian state, because her brothers ask, allow her to go into exile in Europe. In exile in Europe, she finds that she has a reputation there as well. And she, what she does is she begins a speaking tour. She goes around different cities in Europe talking about um, her experience in the so-called Russian Bastille as a way to raise funds, um, raise money for political prisoners in exile. She used her own tale of suffering in prison as a motivation. And she was encouraged to write her memoirs at the same period. And so what happens is her life writings become defined by martyrdom and suffering and the alienation of exile. And so by focusing on her sacrifices rather than her political ideology during this period, Vera's memoirs transcend party lines. Her personal sacrifice became a sacrifice for Russia rather than for the people's will. Specific political aspirations receded into the background and her willingness to offer herself for the sake of the Russian masses and the future of Russia itself became the decisive issue of her life. By leading the, cha the charge of biographical and autobiographical writings for her generation, Vera's depiction of herself as a reluctant terrorist whose, sacrifice, whose selfless devotion climaxed in her own symbolic martyrdom helped to craft the collective historical identity of the people's will. And it was this identity that, became, that was eventually used by the, the Soviets. Um, because I'm running over, um, Vera didn't take part in the Russian Revolution of 1917. Um, instead, she was actually part of a pseudo part of the provisional government that was overthrown by the Bolsheviks. And she had to reconcile herself to suddenly being this old revolutionary in a new revolution and figuring out what it meant to be a revolutionary, but not a Bolshevik revolutionary. She does this under the Bolsheviks um, because she realizes that her own quest to establish literary legitimacy and political significance in a new age resonated with the Soviets' mission to establish a foundational myth for their own regime. The Soviets were bi biography happy. You know, they, they, came to, they came to power and they, they asked people to write biographies as a way to show that the Soviet revolution was justified, that the Bolshevik revolution was justified. 
at the same time that they're doing this, Vera is writing her memoirs because, with, because she's not a member of the Bolsheviks. She's now forced to figure out a way that she can retain some kind of significance in this world without taking a political role. And by showing herself to be this legendary forebearer of the revolutionaries was the way to do it. So for a time, her mission and the, and the, um, the Soviets' mission conformed um, together. And so um, she's, she finds continued uh, significance through this revolutionary legitimacy. Her project coalesced with the Soviet project. Although the Soviet power was predicated upon the notion that the Bolsheviks were inaugurating a new, brave new age that rejected the established patterns of power and hierarchy from the past, the fer their fervent efforts to establish the party's legitimacy by invoking recent history testified to the Soviet recognition that the past had a crucial role to play in the shaping of revolutionary culture. For a time, Vera's mission and the Soviets uh, coalesced together. The Soviets were about building monuments to, to, their, to their revolutionary past. This is the unveiling of a monument to that woman, Sofia Perovskaya, in 1919. Perovskaya had died, but she was, she was used by the, the communists as a way to, to justify their, their, their regime. Vera was more complicated. Sofia Perovskaya could be put into granite and, and, and others like her. They weren't speaking, they weren't breathing. But Vera had the opportunity to challenge the state. And so she ran the risk of being problematic. What she did though, however, was she, be, she found a way to become pragmatic. She became this practical realist. She realized that she could find legitimacy under the Soviets by advocating for political prisoners, by building a museum of revolution, um, by writing literary works, but while refraining from directly attacking the Soviets. So by, by having a cultural and social role, but without having a, okay, I don't know where that is, uh, w without having a, a, a political role. And so for Vera, in her memoirs, she defines herself as a martyr. The first title that I had for my book was going to be Revolutionary Martyrdom. And the publisher scratched that. And I realized in retrospect that even though this whole time I've been interrogating Vera's conception of herself, in some ways it's hard to disengage from, right? Because she depicts herself as this martyr. She depicts herself as this sacrificial lamb on the, on the altar of revolution. But that's not the whole story. In many ways, Vera is more a survivor than she is a martyr. She was shrewd. Yes, she, altruism, altruism guided her, but so did this quest for autonomy and agency and her own power. She found a way to carve out a niche for herself, the most unconventional niche that there could be, but a niche nonetheless, both before and after the 1917 divide. In that way, She's incredibly significant because very few non-Bolsheviks were able to have influence both in the imperial period and the Soviet. And so although she would consider herself a revolutionary martyr par excellence, in some ways she's the, she's the ultimate um, revolutionary survivor. So thank you for your attention and your patience.